Hey everyone, and welcome to Between the Creations. My name is Lorian Hook, and each week on the podcast, I and my guest discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, and the Bible. I'm so glad you've decided to join us. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Between the Creations. I'm so glad you decided to join us, and I'm really excited about this week's episode. This is the first time, and I'm sure there will be other times, but this is the first time where I'm actually having a family member on the podcast with me. I am here with my cousin, Eli, and uh, he does a lot of really cool academic work that I'll let him kind of explain here in a minute, but it's exciting to have someone who I've literally known you know, his entire life. He's a little bit younger than me, so we've known each other for over over 25 years now, which is great. Uh, but he's a phenomenal scholar and has a lot of wisdom to share. So Eli, I will let you kind of introduce yourself however you want to, and whatever you want to share with the listeners, go for it. Yeah. Uh, I was actually, uh, I texted your mom today because I wanted to make sure, like, absolutely know when we met. Uh, and so <laughs> I, she and your dad went through and looked for photos and we found photos of us together at Christmas uh, in 1994. So 1994. just a few months after I was born. I'll yeah. have to get my hands on those and post them to to the Between the Creations Instagram account so that people can can see our throwback images. So Okay, so 94. That's as, as, how long we've known each other. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I just graduated uh, with my Master of Arts in Humanities. Um, so I goal is to go get a PhD in literature, uh, and sort of teach in that vein. Uh, but right now I am teaching undergraduate students. Uh, I have humanities and composition. So, uh, lots of reading, lots of writing. Um, and that's sort of, that's been my thing for a long time. Um, and you know, a lot of my academic work has sort of focused in on, uh, you know, literature, obviously narrative, um, and uh, I've thrown in some theology and uh, th- uh, theological aesthetics, uh, particularly in literature, uh, and sort of seeing how those things uh, overlap and enrich one, one another. Yeah, awesome. So we're actually going to have a conversation kind of about the, the role of narrative and storytelling in our faith and even in our liturgical practices and how all of that ties in. And if you just kind of scratched your head and said, what on earth did she just say? You're in good company and we're going to explain some of that and it's going to be great. Uh, but what I, how I want to begin our conversation for this episode is by letting you, the listener, into a little bit of a more private Marco Polo conversation. If you don't know what Marco Polo is, it's just an app, a video messaging app that Eli and I had earlier this week that kind of helped spur this conversation. And kind of the topic of that conversation, or the gist of the conversation, uh, is this idea that both of us have seen in more evangelical circles of, of Christianity, but but kind of even in others as well, um, where there is this almost pervasive need and almost demand even, I would use that word, demand to have these absolute answers, you know, just hammered out um, things that th- things that are certain, things that never change, these, uh, I don't know what else to call them, I'm sure you might have a better, a better word, uh, Eli, but 
sometimes faith isn't isn't that way. Sometimes faith isn't an exact science. Sometimes faith isn't you know a plus b equals c all the time. It gets messy. It gets convoluted. Um, so I'm gonna just kind of step back now, Eli, and let you kind of share some of your experience with that and your perspective on that. And then we'll start talking about how narrative and storytelling help us work through some of those things. So so I will happily let you take it away from here. Yeah. So this was something that you know, I mean, growing up in an evangelical church. Um, that there was just sort of this driving need always to just have have the absolute right answer. No, 100%, I'm not going to hell because I believe this and this is the correct belief. Uh, and I remember that sort of even giving me a lot of anxiety as, uh, you know, in middle school and high school as I was trying to like reconcile certain things with what I see in the world and what I see in my in my church and figure out where is this sort of line um, and really, I mean, really seeing sort of things in, in this black and white, very sort of strict, um, right and wrong, yes and no. Um, and I've sort of, you know, come to see beyond that in some way. Um, I certainly think that there are definitely right and wrong answers to sure, some things yeah. in life. Um, but I don't think that theology lends itself particularly well to, to always having, you know, these sort of categories of knowledge and, and understanding. Um, and that's something that as I've, as I've continued to study literature and narrative and storytelling, um, to, to realize that there are a lot of different ways to tell the same story. Um, I mean, even, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, like film adaptations of, a, of our favorite novel or something, uh, and we get really upset when it doesn't follow exactly. But an important <laughs> thing to remember is that, you know, it's, it's maybe the same story, but it's being told by a different person. Uh, so you're going to get a different understanding from it. Uh, and I think that that is something that I have come to understand uh, theology, my worldview, uh, to sort of see my faith through that lens of uh, it doesn't always have to be this thing that, you know, your experience isn't like my experience uh, and the way that you understand your faith isn't like I understand my faith, so one of us has to be wrong. Uh, I don't think that that is a particularly useful or healthy way to, uh, sure. to, approach, to approach community uh, and particularly faith community. Yeah, and I... Yeah, exactly. Completely agree with what you just said. I think that there's certain things, obviously, that that most you know Orthodox Christians would consider fundamental, would consider necessary. If you're going to identify yourself as a as a follower of Christ, here's kind of you know the area that you need to land in when it comes to these few things. But the rest of that is kind of just the minutia in some ways. It's 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 like, here's the pool of orthodoxy right here. You got to stay in this end <laughs> and only this end. But there's so much more out there that that I think we long to explore. And I'm not saying like, again, I think Jesus is Lord. There's no real way around that. You know, there's there's no real way around the fact that the, the God revealed in the scriptures that Christians believe in is, is the all-powerful creator God who is working out a plan to redeem all things and make things right. Those types of things... Are, are not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, the the secondary and tertiary theological positions that we just love to try to nail down, um, when in fact there's often just a whole lot more mystery involved. And I've found personally 
that the mystery often feels a lot more like God than my answers do, if that makes sense. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it, I mean, we, we, we preach forgiveness so often, um, and, and this, you know, notion that Christianity is at its core, this sort of forgiving, uh, faith. Uh, but we have this idea that, uh, you know, if our theology isn't absolutely right, then that's going to wreck us. Um, yeah. and, and so thinking about, you know, what, what is it that, why do we need to be right about absolutely everything if we believe in a God that is forgiving, uh, and so we, you know, we want to extend this forgiveness to people on a certain level, but then we, we kind of shut it down sometimes, I think. Uh, and so sort of trying to see things from, from that perspective uh, and that, you know, if, if my theology isn't absolutely correct in every single area, is God not going to forgive me for that? Uh, right. Uh, you know, I think it, it comes down much more to understanding uh, sort of where we stand in community with others, uh, and how our theology, uh, you know, uh, how is it affecting other people, uh, versus whether or not it's actually like, you know, 100% provable and sound, uh, and something that can be, you know, sort of carried out and taught to, you know, other people as a, as a way of sort of a litmus test of, are you Christian or not? But <laughs> yeah. And here's the other thing about this conversation that always just fascinates me. This idea, this kind of need that we maybe were raised with in various ways of, of needing to be right, of needing to have these things nailed down, ab- being absolutely right about our theology apps, you know, having absolutely the, the formula or whatever. If I, if I can have all the answers and have everything hammered out completely right when I'm 15 years old, or whenever, you know, when I'm 20 years old or whatever it is, then to me, that's not much of a faith experience, you know, and and I need room to grow. I need room to ask questions. I need room to have myself be different a year from now. And I think that sometimes the way that we, I say we kind of collectively, Western Christianity, whatever, evangelical, whatever, the way we have done faith doesn't leave people room to grow. It doesn't leave people room to have their perspectives enlarged or have their perspectives changed or have their their life experiences really, you know, taken into account and be like, where was God in that? And and if my preconceived or my predetermined, you know, A plus B always equals C, black and white theology doesn't allow room for that, then some then something's wrong with me or or whatever. When that's not the case, God is big enough for your whole life to be wrapped up in God's self, right? It's not that you it's not that you have to somehow force your life and your theology together. It's a whole lot more fluid than that, I think. Um, but we don't leave people room to grow and we don't leave people room to change their minds and to have, you know, fresh experiences with the divine and and I think that we do that to our detriment uh, in in many many ways. I don't know if, if do you have any experiences about like that, or what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I've I've spent some time thinking about that in sort of that in particular of you know sort of trying to question where does this come from? Why is it that we that we want to pin everything down? Um, and I mean, to me, it comes down to a lot of control. Um, 
you know, be, being in, you know, literature programs, we talk a lot about post-colonial theory. And that's something that I have had to reconcile with, uh, particularly when I was in my undergrad and I was at a, uh, you know, just a, a state school, a very large state school. Um, and so, you know, not everything is approached through a, through a Christian lens there, obviously. And so sort of trying to reconcile uh, these elements of colonialism and their ties to my faith uh, and really kind of coming to see that, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of power plays and methods of control uh, that uh, faith has been implemented uh, for just that. And so I think part of me, the, the, that's where I see that sort of growing out of is if we can nail this down and say, this is 100% how it is. Uh, and if you don't adhere to this, then, you know, you can't be part of our, you know, of our nation or our community. Um, it becomes just sort of a method of control. Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think we're seeing that now, uh, that any sort of resistance to, uh, matters of racism, uh, and particularly the churches, uh, complicit stance in uh, systemic racism in the U.S. uh, and resistance to trying to understand that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that kind of comes back down to this of we we want to be in control. We want to maintain that power, but we don't want it. We like it it when it doesn't look like it's oppressing other people. Uh, Right, exactly. (laughs) And it's so much easier. And I, I talk about this with my friends all the time. It's so much easier in so many ways to live in a black and white, just simply dualistic world where it's it's either this or this. There's no questioning. There's no mystery. There's no other. There's no gray. Uh, and again, I feel like, and I just, I've sensed building over the past several years, we do this to our detriment. We, we destroy the mystery. And the hope I think that we have in this God that we claim to love and serve when we try to nail everything down and and then, and usually you're exactly right, I think, we do this for control and part of that control so often, whether we realize it or not, and you kind of hinted at this, is something that's wrapped up in that control at least, is an element of exclusion of those who do not adhere to our playbook, our exact precise playbook that, you know, if you don't believe these things about the faith that we do, then you're out. And sometimes I think the things that make that list are tertiary at best (laughs) and, and not the primary things like, you know, we said at the beginning, Jesus is Lord and, you know, if it's not in the creeds, then maybe we should take a deep breath. That's kind of where how I think about it sometimes. It has helped me get my mind around it. Um, but I do want to ask you now, because I think that one of the things that spurred our conversation initially to have this episode is what are some ways we can kind of heal that? What are some ways we can move past that and grow in those ways? And you and I are huge, huge fans of literature. We read a lot, both of us do. And you and I both seem to think that narrative and storytelling are ways that we can kind of allow ourselves to grow in this idea of mystery. Um, so do you have any initial thoughts on that? I know we have some other quotes we want to talk about from your from your thesis, but just off the bat, do you have anything that you want to bring up about storytelling, narrative, theology, anything like that? Yeah. So, I mean, 
to me, sort of pairing the two together has, has always felt pretty natural. Um, I, I think we, I can thank uh, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia for that as sort of being a, you know, some foundational texts uh, for me, uh, seeing how I can, I can read this sort of fictional narrative and have, understand some real world implications from it, uh, particularly with my faith. Um, and that's just always been something that's been present as I'm reading, no matter what I'm reading, um, that I am bringing this sort of lens, uh, of my faith to whatever it is that I'm reading. Um, and I, I've just sort of grown into this sort of position of seeing how those, there's sort of this back and forth between, um, you know, me, you know, putting this lens on whatever it is that I, that I may be reading, uh, the stories that I'm taking in, but then also allowing those stories to then shape, uh, shape my life, uh, in some particular way. Um, and so I think that's, I've always re- reacted much better to stories as a, as a means of learning, uh, than, than any other, than any other thing in my life, um, particularly, uh, written word. Uh, but even just, you know, uh, friends sharing a story. Uh, if you, you know, my mom's side of the family, you've, you've been at some of those <laughs> gatherings, uh, yeah. you know, that as soon as, as soon as we're together, it's just, it's story after story, uh, that, and it, Oftentimes it's the same stories that we've been telling, you know, my entire 26 <laughs> years that I've been hearing over and over again. But there's something that's very, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's familiar, it's traditional, but it's even, uh, it's generative in some way that, you know, the retelling of these same stories, uh, sometimes by different people, you know, if somebody has passed on, uh, maybe a story that they used to tell all the time is now told by, you know, one of my aunts or my uncles, um, and so it's just, I think there's so much that can happen in the space of telling a story. Um, there's so much room for interpretation. Um, there's room for gathering. There's room for healing. Um, there's, to me, there's just nothing that a story can't do. <laughs> uh, right. No matter what and you might be facing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And this, there was this idea in your, in your thesis that you brought up, um, which is a, a you know James K Smith and people like this bring up this idea of these identity forming practices and you know th- those being for, he a lot of people talk about it much like you did in your thesis about you know what do we do when we practice liturgy what do we do when we are you know enacting the same types of events in our worship services week after week well what we're really doing is creating a narrative what we're really doing is telling a story that then shapes us as people um but identity forming practices can be, it doesn't have to happen in a church, right? It can happen at a dinner table. It can happen at your office. It can happen wherever. Um, and I think that, again, certain denominations, right, we have these identity forming practices nailed down so much that there's no room to, to grow in them. Now, I think there's good things there. They help us kind of, you know, I, I love me some liturgy. I love high church. I think that there's deep value, deep beauty there. Um, but you, I think, bring this really interesting perspective of how do we see those things that we enact week after week in fresh ways? They're not going to change. Like, we're not, the Anglicans, Episcopalians, we're not, we're not changing our services, right? 
But I think there are fresh ways to see the elements and see the order of service um, so that it can be a shaping narrative and one that is not black and white always, one that is not continually the same thing week after week. And I'll give a personal example, then I would love your thoughts on this as well. There have been seasons of my life where different elements of the services startle me. And I've, I've done this, you know, for years and years and years, or they make me think differently, or there are different aspects of a service or even a song that we're singing that I'm just like, I'm not feeling that right now. That's not where I am. I, I'm not, I'm not even sure I believe all this right now, quite frankly. You know, I mean, I'm in such a place of that, of that desperation, of that depression, anxiety, whatever it is, doubt even, um, in that moment, and what helps me most is to see those practices, those, those you know, forming narratives that get played out over and over and over again, but to also feel the presence of the, the people next to me who do, who are, you know, fully engaged in that in the moment, who are like, absolutely, I believe all this right now. And there's a community aspect, but there's also a greater narrative, I think, that's being told in the midst of those things that we are invited to live in, and one that's not necessarily black and white all the time. Um, do you have... Yeah, I'll take it away. <laughs> yeah, so uh, one thing that I really love about uh, liturgy, uh, and if you're not if you're not familiar with liturgy, um, pretty much anything that you think about that happens inside a Catholic church, uh, that's going to be liturgy, um, but... <laughs> There are liturgical seasons uh, through the year that begins with Advent, um, and so you know each year the church follows uh, the liturgical calendar, uh, sort of moving through these different seasons, and it's meant the liturgical calendar is meant to reflect the life of Christ. Uh, so at each of these seasons, we're sort of meditating on, celebrating, uh, worshiping in these different parts of Christ's life uh, for the for the purpose of becoming more like Christ. Um, and so that to me, like right there, that is, uh, that's already not, not black and white because the idea that each time you go through this, it's, you're, you're going to experience it differently. Uh, but you have these sort of markers as you go to say, okay, you know, this is Easter this year. This is what I, this is where I am. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm feeling but I can look back on Easter last year as well and see how much I've grown in that time. Uh, and that's just, you, you have opportunity after opportunity throughout that, throughout the liturgical calendar to reflect back on, uh, how you're growing, maybe how you're backsliding. Um, and so you, you, you get this sort of repetitive rhythmical, uh, aspect of liturgy, but that still allows room for growth. Um, and I think, I mean, James K. A. Smith talks about this a lot. Of, of, you know, we just need to attend to our, our liturgies. We need to understand mm -hmm. what they are. Um, because if we're just going along with it, uh, then we're never going to, uh, we're never going to see growth from that. Um, so it's, it's a lot of just understanding what liturgies am I enacting? Because we're all enacting liturgies, whether or not we we recognize it or not. But in recognizing yeah. it is where we we get that reflection that allows for uh, you know, further formation, uh, further growth in our faith. Um, you you brought up a little bit about um, you know this this idea of sort of sitting in a, in church and not not feeling like you can fully participate. Uh, uh, sort of maybe maybe more intellectually, more spiritually in some way. Um, and that to me is another really 
one of the, one of the strengths of liturgy um, is are sort of the physical aspects of it. Um, you know, there's it sometimes looks a little silly, silly. There's a lot of up and down and crossing yourself, yeah. and there's you know procession of the cross and holding the gospel above your head. Like there's there's all these things, but they are sort of these physical reminders that you know for someone like you know you and me, we're you know, we're Enneagram fives. We live in our heads a lot, uh, <laughs> and it's easy to get trapped there. Um, but having these sort of physical reminders to draw us back in uh, is really useful to me. Um, and you also mentioned, you know, sort of having, uh, having other people around you that are enacting this liturgy that you, maybe you want to participate in, but you can't fully participate in for whatever reason. Um, but having them there and being sort of part of that community actually kind of allows them to participate in that story for you in some way to to sort of carry you through that. Um, I have a, I have a friend here out out here in Tennessee, uh, he is a Benedictine monk, um, and he he told one of my other friends was having a hard time. She was saying, you know, I really, I I don't know if I if I believe right now. I don't know if I can believe right now. And he just said, "Let me believe for you," and yeah. um, and that just sort of the you know entered into this relationship for a time of you know her having space to sort of work through some of that without feeling the the pressure of, I have to have this right. Uh, mm-hmm. And feeling that sort of the weight of that guilt of like, oh, I'm not singing this song right now because, you know, I just can't. Uh, mm-hmm. And so sort of allowing space for other people to, to be that for you. Yeah. And I so love what you also said about, you know, liturgically there's different seasons and so you for example we'll use advent we're we're advent is fast approaching uh when we when we're recording this i'm not sure when it'll air but it it's uh, when we record this in october it is fast approaching that advent will be here soon and uh it's i often think about the rhythms of the church and the rhythms of my own life that get swept up in the rhythms of the church and i i always have this feeling i'm like i don't want to be the same as i was last advent I want something to be different. I want, and there's comfort in the fact that Advent always comes around. So that's the sameness. That's that's the, if you need something that's black and white, there it is. Advent will always come around. There's your black and white. Um, but everything else around it feels, you know, super colorful and different and vibrant. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's gray and dreary and, you know, almost hopeless. I've gone through Advents that I'm like, this... <laughs> I ain't ready for this. Like this, this whole waiting thing feels exactly like my life right now. And I'm not even, the resolution of Jesus's birth is not even fixing this right now for me. And so, and being honest about that, but I don't want to be the same this Advent that I was last Advent. I don't want to be the same next Easter um, that I was this Easter because my life has changed. I've grown as a person. Hopefully I've learned more about Jesus and I've become more like him in so many more ways. Um, maybe, maybe it's been a hard year. Maybe it's been a year that I'm just, we're, we are barely crossing, you know, the finish line to, to get into the new year of, of Advent that Advent brings for us. And it's just, it's a bomb that we're finally there. And it's different every single year because it's not, it's, it's not black and white always. It's not, um, we don't enact the exact same thing every single time. And that is what forms us. It's, it's our life being brought into this greater narrative and then it makes sense again. And we're like, okay, I can keep moving. It looks different than it did last year, 
but I can keep moving because this narrative is helping me tell my story. Um, there was something that you said, uh, this, the idea it was in, it was in your thesis when I, when I read it to kind of get ready for this conversation. Um, it's a quote that you, that you used the idea that all things hold sacramental potential and are thus able to represent God in the world. Um, and of course, some of my theologians who listen to this are like, you know, they're, they're screaming at me right now. And I'm like, look, we're not, I'm not talking about like, you know, pantheism or anything like that. But, but if I truly believe that God created all things and God animates all things through the spirit, um, then I really have to look at the world and be like, where is God working? Where is the spirit moving? And what is God inviting me into? Um, so I would love your thoughts on that as well, because I thought that was a really powerful part of, of your thesis. Yeah. So that was, um, part of my thesis was talking about Wendell Berry and his works and sort of uh, teasing out some of those liturgical, rhythmical aspects of uh, of how he depicts this community um, in his novels. Uh, but this is this was one other scholar that was sort of noting this notion of uh, pan-sacramentality uh, yeah, and that, that idea that uh, we can find sacramental imagery in just about anything. Um, and yeah, I uh, sort of that, you know, idea of sacrament being physical representations of divine grace. Um, and yeah, I'm drawing a blank again here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, it's these images of divine grace that we receive through, through our experiences in the world. And again, it's not black and white. It's not the, it's not easy answers all the time. Sometimes we have to struggle to see God in the world. We have to struggle to see that, which is why stories matter. Because regardless of what's going on in the background of my life, Advent's going to come. And sometimes it comes as a, as a shock. Sometimes it comes as a help. Sometimes it comes as an encouragement. Um, and uh, obviously Wendell Berry, you know, talking about all kinds of, of farm imagery and stuff like that. The corn's going to grow. The, the corn has to be planted. The wheat has to be planted. And it creates this rhythm uh, for us. But again, coming back to this idea that hopefully I'm not the same person I was when the corn was planted last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I think actually kind of set us off on this conversation a few weeks ago um, was, uh, I believe it's in episode five, uh, your guest talked about uh, sort of encountering God in the narratives of others. Uh, and that's one place where I sort of see this uh, pan-sacramentality um, and, and narrative sort of coming into play uh, is that, you know, if we believe that, you know, each human being bears the image of God um, and that can therefore be this sort of, you know, an image of Christ even in our, in our lives that just by listening to somebody else's story, uh, regardless of their of their faith, of their theology, of their lifestyle, of their culture, we can encounter God, even if that person doesn't even believe in God or in the same God as us, as in a God at all. We can still there. There's some part of God to be encountered in somebody else's story, um, and I think that's a really that's a really sort of powerful and uh, almost you know groundbreaking. Uh, yeah, it's holy. Ground, it's something yeah. that's holy. Yeah, that can be pretty earth-shaking for for some for some of us as we as we sort of have to recalibrate our worldview. Exactly. 
Yeah, that's that's so true. And this idea of every person that you meet is an image bearer of God, whether they know it or not, right? And and so I think that, you know, there's some people that if if you ask the question of, you know, can you encounter God in someone who's not a Christian? Some people would say no. Some people would say, well, they don't they don't know God, so how on earth are they reflecting God into the world or how are they, you know, attempting to walk in the ways of Christ or anything like that. And that's that's not really the question. The question is, can something of God be present in that person? Or or can God teach me something shaping through my encounter with that person? And um, the answer is always yes. Always yes. Because if Jesus is to be found, much, much like the scriptures tell us, Hebrews picks up on this, other places pick up on this, the gospels illustrate it. If Jesus is to be found outside of all the places where we want to him to be, <laughs> where we want where we want God to be is often not where God is. It is really one of the resounding images that the Gospels um, reveal to us about about this God. Then, then I have to start looking sometimes for my theology or my worldview or my perspective where I least expect it to be found. And I think that can be really hard for people uh, who maybe grew up like you and I did, very black and white, very, you know, this is this is the formula, you follow the formula and God will show up. I don't think God likes math very much. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't like math very much. So, you know, let's create God in my own image. It's great. Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I you know, but I feel I think you understand what I'm saying. Where we have to begin pressing up against our preconceived ideas of where God is to be found, and I think storytelling and narrative sharing and life sharing is one of the best ways for that to take place. Absolutely, um, I mean, there's there's nothing quite so healthy as you know hearing somebody else's experience that does not match up with yours at all. Um, because it's really easy to get stuck in this place uh, of of sort of thinking that your experience is uh, is like others. Um, I mean, we talk about this all the time, uh, as far as like uh, maybe in relation to sin or mental health. Um, that you know, we sometimes get in this place of thinking like, oh, nobody else has gone through what I am going through, um, even though we know that that that's not. We know that not to be true, and that when we open up, we we find other people with similarities. But we don't sort of extend that to uh, that that thought process to narratives that don't quite match up with how we understand the world. You know, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, one sort of uh, I don't know if failing is quite quite the right word. It's maybe a little extreme, uh, but. Uh, the way that the the story of Christ is told, or was has been told to us since childhood, um, you know, we we talk about Christ having human form, having a physical body, um, you know, this idea of incarnation. Um, but I don't know about you, but that was never really the emphasis on on the life and the story of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I've uh, experienced more liturgy. I've come to realize that for a lot of people, that is sort of the, that's the crux of it all is the, the fact that Christ had a physical body and we have physical bodies. Um, and so I, I don't know, is that, has that been your, your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I just recently taught on the ending of Hebrews two and Hebrews, Hebrews two ends really beautifully. And it's like, look, Christ su- suffered 
Christ was tempted, and in his temptations, he suffered so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest for us. And and we don't, in the traditions that I grew up in, you know, it wasn't, the emphasis was never placed on, on the, the humanity of, of Christ. We acknowledge, of course, that he would, that this divine mystery of the incarnation, you know, fully God, fully man, but we really, really focused on the God part a lot and never really as, as much as we did, uh, talk about him being divine, talk about the humanity of, of Christ. And I think that Hebrews does this really well. Uh, the author of Hebrews just is like, look, Jesus suffered. <laughs> and, and because of his suffering, he is now able to fully relate to you and your suffering and your life experience and your, you know, when you feel like you're the only one or whatever. Um, and I think that we would do well in a lot of, in a lot of Christian circles to go back to that idea and to really examine, am I holding both the divinity and humanity together? Um, because I think there's a lot of comfort for us in that. There's there's a lot of beauty in that where it redeems even the mundane and it redeems even the, the tiny wounds and the temptations you suffer. Um, and I think, again, going back to this idea of narrative being healing in a lot of ways, it can heal part of your life story where you're like, okay, God was even present in that. And, uh, you know, where are we looking for God and everything? Kind of circling back to that. Um, so that's kind of my experience with that. I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I, I mean, that to me brings to mind even sort of the ways that we talk about death um, and the story that we tell around that as, you know, we, we try to comfort people with this notion of like, oh, they're in a better place now. And like, yeah, like, sure. But there we that's not a good way of reconciling the physical death that, mm-hmm. that all of us will experience. And, yeah. uh, and so I think if we, if we were able to, to more fully embrace the fact that Jesus had a body, um, and that that has massive imp- implications for our own bodies and their, uh, their role in our faith. Um, I think that that, that's also sort of a way of, of shifting the narrative and re reevaluating how we see other people. Um, because I mean, like, like we've already been talking about, like if we are aware or more aware of the fact that, you know, Jesus did have physical form, he had the physical body, uh, then we are much more likely to see that in the physical bodies of others, uh, which could potentially have massive, massive implications for how we, how we view violence, how we view, uh, you know, different systems of oppression that no matter, no matter what might be going on contextually, uh, no matter what narrative might be being told about, you know, particular events, if you're witnessing harm to other people's bodies, you are witnessing harm to a physical image of God. And, yes. Preach. And, and it's easy for us to, to sort of say, again, we come back to this sort of spiritual thing, like, oh, if the physical body is destroyed, there's still, there's, there, there's still a spirit, you know? Uh, uh-huh. maybe, it, maybe they did or maybe they didn't do what it takes to, to save their soul, but, you know, the physical body isn't so much our responsibility. Um, we're only concerned with, concerned with saving souls. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe at the end of the day that 
is the the more important thing, but it's not the end of the day right now. And yeah, uh, and, and if we really believe in the resurrection of the dead, then then it's it's so far beyond saving souls, whatever we're on earth we mean by that. <laughs> like, oh gosh, but oh man, you you hit the nail on the head. When we witness violence or mistreatment, or I mean, even like hunger in another human being. And we refuse to step in and do something about it, then we are allowing damage and harm to come to the very body of Christ. Um, and if we believe that Christ is all in all, like Paul tells us, uh, then then we need to do something about it. And if we believe that all humans bear God's image, like Genesis tells us, um, then then we need to do something about it. And we have to figure out a better story that that answers those questions. And I think I think that the story of, of God's work in the world is that story. I just don't think we've told it very well. We've told it, like what you mentioned, in a very Gnostic-y, you know, let's save their souls, but I really don't care if they starve, or I really don't care if they're, you know, assaulted or whatever it is, um, which is not, it's not the true narrative. It goes even beyond that, I think, to, again, we want this black and white system that will answer all of our questions that won't leave us in the dark about anything because God forbid something happen outside of our, you know, black and white system that we don't know how to respond to. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I think that's what we are seeing now happen in the world. Things are happening that the church does not know how to respond to uh, or that Christians don't know how to respond to because it doesn't fit in our predetermined black and white narrative that we've given each other of, okay, A plus B always equals C. Sometimes it doesn't. Absolutely. Sometimes the answers are a lot more confusing than that. And I have seen such a resistance, a resistance to even being willing to wrestle with those things. Um, and that kind of terrifies me a little bit. I don't know what your experience has been with yeah, that. I think, I mean, just considering that, uh, everything that you just said is like, if we have this sort of this very tidy black and white system, everything fits into its little box and all those boxes fit together. Uh, then if one thing goes wrong, you get one little speck of dust in this pristine machine, uh, throws the entire thing off. And I think that's what terrifies people, uh, is the thought that like, well, if I reevaluate this one part, I'm going to have to reevaluate every part and potentially those things won't come back together in a way that I like and in yeah. a way that suits me. Um, and so I think there, there's a lot of fear around that. Uh, whereas if we can get beyond that, we can, there's so much freedom in, yes. in sort of breaking out and saying, you know what? I don't have to have all the answers. I know, I know who I am. I know what I believe at my core. I don't have to have all the answers so that no matter what situation I encounter, I I'll be set, you know? Yeah. And I, I've been saying that I found myself having conversations similar to ours pretty frequently recently. And I can't tell you how many times recently that I've said, look, if my, if, if the God that I claim to believe in and serve and love is explainable in every single is is completely explainable, and I can put that God in a box and say, "Look, I've I figured it out. Here's my theology. It's all pristine. It's it's set. It's it's figured out. It's black and white. It'll give you all the answers you need." 
if my if I can do that to to whatever God I claim to serve, then it's not a very powerful God. It's not a very big God. It's not a very use. It's not a very helpful God to me, right? Because if I can explain it, then I'm basically God, and I need something so much bigger and outside of myself to help me make sense of things, to help me grow, to help save me from myself half the time. Uh, that I can't explain it all the way, and if I can, then something's off, and and that has helped people that I've talked to think about it a little bit differently is like, if you can explain your God completely, if you can lay out these, you know, tenets of faith or whatever it is, or, or have like a worldview that completely fits you at all times and, and is, is unquestionable. Um, then it makes me wonder, are you just making God in your own image? Is your God too small? Uh, again, being comfortable with the mystery, uh, of, of it all, you know, and trying to figure out what that looks like. And, Again, being willing to ask questions, being willing to have the mystery is sometimes a, a hard place to get people to be, you know, from black and white to the mystery, um, which is why I think storytelling and narrative and just sharing our lives with people helps, helps that. And I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but I think the storytelling helps. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember, so while writing my thesis, so it's, it's part, uh, it's, it's part research-based, obviously, um, but also part sort of creative uh, response uh, in which I, I sort of take these different parts of liturgy uh, and use them as a lens for understanding different stories from my, from my family's past, and particularly stories that take place in, in the home of my grandparents. Uh, and I, just, I remember while writing it that I kind of had this moment of like, or I had this moment a few times of like, why, what is the point of this? Why, why <laughs> does anybody else need to hear the story of another white guy, uh, you know, spending time with his grandparents? But, and, and I mean, to a degree, maybe that is the case, but also that's just, that is how we encounter God. That is how we get to know people. That is how people come to know us. Uh, and that is where it's, it's in those bonds in that community, um, that, that I think God has found, uh, that, uh, that's one of the best ways that, that we have of trying to understand what it means to be Christ-like is really only through being with other people and, and sharing those stories, uh, no matter what your story might look like, no matter how bland it may seem, no matter how messed up it may be, that that is where, that's where it happens. That is where yeah. we bring the kingdom of God to earth. That is, that's, that's where, you know, I think we, we sometimes think of, uh, on earth as it is in heaven as a, uh, as an eschatological, uh, statement, but I think it's much more every day than that. <laughs> yep. Uh, absolutely. And uh, man, I think that's a great way to end right there. It's, <laughs> that's a great statement. So I, I think that we will, we'll wrap it up with that. Thank you so much for your willingness to have these conversations. I really appreciate, um, your presence, uh, on this podcast. And I'm sure that we will, I'm sure Eli will be back is what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. You guys know the routine by now. Make sure that you've subscribed to the podcast. If you haven't left a comment or rated or reviewed it, please go ahead and do that. And we will be back next week. <laughs>